morning, this is a verse that I particularly love. Um, the truth is, I could have chosen scores of different verses to be our, our key verse for what we're learning on this Lord's Day, but Romans eleven thirty six is one that has been very helpful for me. Uh, Calvin says about Romans eleven thirty six, he says, God justly claims for himself absolute supremacy, and that in the condition of mankind and of the whole world, nothing is to be sought beyond his own glory. Nothing is to be sought beyond or above the glory of God. What does Romans 11.36 say? It says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now I'm not going to take time to review what we talked about this morning. Um, you have your, your outlines and uh, we can get you the notes if you, if you missed or need to catch up. But at this point we're under our second heading, uh, heavily influenced by Jonathan Edwards. And that heading is this, what reason teaches us about the purpose of everything. What reason teaches us about the purpose of everything. And we've just discussed the all-important fourth point under that heading. Namely, that since nothing or no one is higher, better, more lovely, or more good than God, it is right that God should love himself supremely. It is right that God should love himself supremely. So now we come to our fifth point, and here it is. It is right that God should act to express his love and his happiness in himself. It is right that God should act to express his love and his happiness in himself. Can you imagine telling Michelangelo that though he loves painting and though he is amazing at it, that he should not do it? Can you imagine telling Bach to give up music or telling Dostoevsky to never write a novel? Our God is perfect in wisdom. He's perfect in power. He's perfect in creativity. Is it not right that he should express that wisdom and that power and that creativity? That he should put it into action? All of God's attributes are wonderful. His, his justice, his mercy, his wrath, his compassion. Is it not right that God should choose some means by which to actually express those attributes for his own enjoyment? It isn't that God is going to be unhappy or discontent if he doesn't create. He's not some frustrated God in heaven if we don't exist and the world doesn't exist. For all eternity, he is perfect in his happiness. But it is the very nature of happiness that it wants to be expressed. There's, there's an overflowing quality to joy. And so it makes sense that in his joy, our God would actually express these glorious and wonderful attributes in himself that bring him such joy. And so what does he do? He creates. He creates the world. 
And in Genesis, we see that after each day, he looks at his handiwork and he enjoys it and he declares it good. Day one, it is good. It is pleasing to me. I'm good at this, <laughs> right? Day two, he creates. It is pleasing to God. It is good. And then he comes to the end of his creation, the end of the sixth day, and, and he has his crowning achievement, man, de- uh, created in his own image, and God beholds his own handiwork, and he declares it very good. Friends, we should never doubt it. God had a blast creating the world. And since God is not limited by time or space, but exists outside of time, there is a sense in which God is eternally having a blast as he creates the world. He is in that moment always. Uh, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. So there is a sense in which God is at all times, at all places, at all times. And so at creation, God is. He is there now, and just as he is here now, and, and at every other point in time, he is there now. And God is enjoying creating mountains and supernovas and black holes and starfish and South American short-tailed possums. I had one of those as a pet when I was in college, and I used to put it in my pocket, and he would ride around, and I was weird. But it is right that God should act to express his attributes, his love and his happiness in himself. And he does that in creation and in history. Well, number six, number six, since God is all wise, since God is all wise, we can be sure that if God acts to express his love and happiness in himself, he will do so in the best way possible. Since God is all-wise, since he doesn't make mistakes, since he doesn't do anything halfway, we can be sure that if God's goal is to express his love in himself, to express his joy in himself, to express his attributes for his own enjoyment, he's going to do that in the best way possible. And this is actually really, really cool to think about because it means that you and I are living in the best possible world. Have you ever thought about that? You and I are living in the best possible world. You say, Justin, there are mosquitoes in this world. And I know. And there is suffering and there is tragedy and there is injustice. This is a fallen world. This is a cursed world. But none of that is by accident. And for the purpose for which God created this world... And for the purpose for which God is directing history, we live in the best possible world. God didn't do anything in this world second rate. For the purpose which God has in mind, namely the expression of his attributes for his own enjoyment, we live in the best possible world. Think about it this way. How would God have opportunity to express his compassion or his tenderness or his mercy or his justice or his wrath or his righteousness if there was no tragedy or suffering or injustice in this world. You can't express grace without sin. You can't express patience without someone to be patient towards. You can't express righteousness and justice 
if there is nothing to be righteous or just towards. Every part of this universe and every event that happens in history exists that God might express what he would otherwise not have opportunity to express. He is revealing his attributes. He is Michelangelo and all of creation in history is his Sistine Chapel. And he is at work. Seventh. Seventh. Whatever God has ultimately accomplished in creation is his ultimate aim in creation. This just makes perfect logical sense, right? Whatever God does, he does perfectly and well. He doesn't do anything and not accomplish his goal. So whatever God actually has accomplished in creation and history, we can be sure that was his purpose, that was his aim, that was his goal. So we can know what God's purpose is in this world and in creation by looking at what he's actually accomplished. So let's run with that for a moment. What do we know that God has accomplished and is accomplishing through creating this world and through the pages of history turning? Well, first, as we've said, in creation and history, God has given expression to his perfect attributes. In creation and history, God has given expression to his perfect attributes. Through creation, through history, his power is on display. His wisdom is on display. His goodness is on display. His justice, every other excellency within God is on display. Second, in creation and history, God has made for himself creatures, angels and men, that are capable of beholding God's excellencies. So not only is God displaying his attributes for his own enjoyment, but he's also, at the, at the height of creation, he created a, a, a people, a kind of creature, who can also with him behold his own attributes. And man wasn't the first. Angels can do that too. Angels can, can behold the glorious attributes of God. In other words, God has not only expressed his attributes for his own enjoyment in creation, but he has also created persons who are themselves both examples of his awesome creative ability, but are also an audience able to see and comprehend something of his awesomeness. It is good and it is right that God should create for himself both angelic and human persons to whom he can express the glory of his wonderful self. Third, in creation and history, God has made for himself creatures, angels and men, that are not only capable of beholding God's excellencies, but are also capable of delighting in those excellencies, thereby sharing with God in his joy in himself. So God has created this world and he's working through history to express his own attributes for his own enjoyment, but he's also created creatures, angels and men, who can also see and behold what he's doing, who can also see and behold his glory. And not only that, but they have a capacity, it's a limited capacity, but they have a capacity to delight in what they see, to, to savor and rejoice in the awesome glories of God. God's own delight overflows. And these angels and these men are brought into his own enjoyment, sharing in God's enjoyment of himself. 
Nod your head if you're with me. Good. Fourth, in creation and history, God has made for himself a particular people, the redeemed, to whom he, as an overflowing, never-ending fountain, imparts his own goodness, love, mercy, and grace, so that his glory is expressed in them, and they are united with him in infinite joy. So see how this takes it a step further. It's not just that God created the world and is, and, and is governing history to express his attributes for his own enjoyment. And he created angels and men who can see his glory and rejoice in his glory with him and participate in his joy in himself. But then there's a particular people, the redeemed, who get to know for themselves what it is to be an object of the grace of God. And the mercy of God. This is where you and I as Christians are different from angels. The angels can see and they can savor the glory of God. And they can worship him forever in pure bliss. But even the angels can never know the depths of joy in God that we know in the way that we know it. Because we know God as objects of his mercy. We are able to know God personally in our very selves as saved people. To us, God is what he is to no one else. He is a savior. He is a rescuer. He is merciful and gracious. He is the father who adopted us out of the mud pit, cleaned us up, and is making us new. In creation and history, God has made for himself a redeemed people who are sharing with the Father in his enjoyment of all that he is, including sharing and delighting in the amazing grace of God. So let's summarize everything that we've been able to say so far, uh, just using logic and reason. If God is perfect, that was our starting point. If God is perfect, this all must be true. And here's what we've come up with. What is the purpose of all things? All things exist for God's glory. More specifically, God's ultimate purpose is that he does all that he does to express his own perfect attributes for his own enjoyment. He joyfully beholds himself. And this ultimate purpose of the universe is that the glorious character of God be expressed and enjoyed first by God himself, but also by angels and men who have been created to share with God in his enjoyment of himself, and especially by the redeemed who get to know God as gracious and merciful. The Westminster Confession of Faith gets it exactly right when it asks, what is the chief end of man? Meaning, what is the ultimate purpose of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To see, savor, rejoice in, praise the awesome character of God, sharing with God in his infinite delight in himself. Now, we've gone from sticking our toes in the water of what is this purpose, to maybe getting in about ankle deep. 
Um, next Sunday, I hope to get us maybe knee-deep. I don't know how deep you can get in this life. I don't know if you can get much deeper than knee-deep in this life and in, in these things. Um, but we're going to get maybe knee-deep because we're going to start talking about how God is triune, how he is Trinity, and how that, that makes all of this make even more sense. It, it puts meat to the bones when we realize that when I say God delights in himself, God beholds himself, what I'm really saying is the Father delights in the Son. The Father beholds the Son. The Son beholds the Father. And the infinite love and joy that we're being brought into is the infinite love and joy that the Father shares with the Son and the Son shares with the Father. But that's, that's all next week. Tonight, what we need to do with the rest of our time is anchor everything that we've said in the pages of the Bible. Because as wonderful as reason and logic are, the Word of God is even more sure and so I want to make sure we see that the Bible teaches these things that we've seen on this Lord's Day. So first, does the Bible teach that the end of all things is the glory of God? That the purpose of all things is the glory of God? And the answer to that is a big yes. Um, we see it in Romans eleven thirty six. We see it in many passages that I quoted for you at the end of the sermon this morning. And we see it in the fact that over and over again, the Bible tells us that God does everything for his glory. Let me mention just a few examples. We were created for God's glory. Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Why were you created? For the glory of God. We just finished studying Exodus 1 through 15. What was the ultimate reason that God saved his people out of Egypt? Psalm 106, 7 and 8 tells us, Psalm 106, 7 and 8, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works, they did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. So we're told that it wasn't that the people of Israel were so wonderful that God saved them. Even at the Red Sea, they were already rebelling. They were already grumbling. And yet we're told that it was for his name's sake, for his glory that God saved them. Once Israel was brought out of Egypt, they still did not put away their false gods. They continued to live in immorality and to turn to idols. And God tells us that he was ready to pour out his wrath upon Israel to destroy his own chosen people. But instead of destroying them, he chose to show mercy. Why? Ezekiel 20. And I'm going to read verses 9, 14, and 22. Ezekiel 20, verses 9, 14, and 22. Ezekiel 20, verse 9, he says, But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived. So why did God choose not to destroy his people, but to show them mercy? I acted for the sake of my name. Or again, verse 14, I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I have brought them out. Or verse 22, but I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name, 
that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. In Ezekiel 20, we have this refrain, for the sake of my name, for the sake of my name, for the sake of my name. This is why God does what he does. Uh, Israel came into the promised land and over centuries continued to rebel against God. And finally, God brought judgment and he sent his people into exile But rather than giving Israel completely over to foreign nations and having them utterly destroyed, God chose for there to be a remnant. And he chose to bring some of his people back to their homeland and ultimately to restore the nation. Why did he do that? Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 36, 22 and 24. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake. O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations in which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Why? For my name, God says. Now, Herman, when we look at the entire Old Testament and everything that God did, especially with ancient Israel, we see that it was all centered around this one primary motivation, that God would be seen as glorious, that God would be seen as the great God that he is that his attributes of justice and faithfulness and mercy and power would be recognized by people and honored by people and loved by people. It was always about him. What about Jesus? Why did Jesus come to earth? In particular, why did Jesus experience such terrible agony and die on a cross? When one of the most revealing passages in all of Scripture John 12, 27 and 28. John 12, 27, 28. Jesus says this. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then we're told that a voice came down from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So Jesus says, it is for this purpose that I have come to this hour, the hour of the cross. What was that purpose? Father, glorify Your name. Show Yourself to be glorious. Let people all over the world, including people in Rocky Mount in the year 2015, to see that You are a gracious God and a merciful God and a loving God and let them find their joy in You because they've seen You as full of mercy because I came to this hour and I was willing to lay down my life for them. It's always been about the glory of God. Because of Jesus, we have the forgiveness of our sins. Our God forgives sins. Why does he do that? Isaiah 42, 25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. God says, it is, it is 
I, who forgives you your sins, I blot out your transgressions, they're gone. And why do I do it? For my own sake, for my glory, for my name, to show something about who I am. Namely, I'm a God of grace. I'm a God of forgiveness. And we'll be singing about that for a million gazillion million years. What about those who aren't forgiven? What about those who go to hell? Why would God create such a terrible place as hell? And why would God cast people into utter destruction? Romans 9, 22 through 23 tells us, we'll unpack this more later, but for now, just hear God's motivation of, of why there is a people that go to hell. Paul tells us, Romans 9, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand in glory. So do you hear the verbs being used there? Why is God doing what he's doing even in judging people and sending them into everlasting damnation? He says, I'm doing this to show my wrath, to make known my power, to make known the riches of my glory to my vessels of mercy. There will be a day when believers in heaven, along with angels, will rejoice with God and praise God even for his attribute of wrath and righteousness and justice. It's all about the glory of God. What about heaven? What is heaven about? It's all about the glory of God. Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And all I've done is given you a small sampling of verses. There are hundreds, hundreds more that I could have pulled out. Many of them I'm saving for later in, in the series. I mean, there's, there's so many more that make this so very clear that the ultimate purpose of everything is the glory of God. Specifically, his enjoyment of himself and his bringing into that enjoyment us. Secondly, then, we ask this question. Does the Bible teach that the reason God does everything for his glory is because he delights in himself? In other words, is it true that God is happy in himself and that he does all that he's doing out of his joy, that that he has a a, a God-centered love for himself and that the reason he's doing everything for his glory is it is his delight in himself to show his attributes? Well, before I, I, I point to some biblical texts that teach us that God's happiness in himself is behind everything that he's doing, let me just point out why this has to be true. I mean, it just has to be true, and here's why. If God's not doing all things for his glory because he wants to, because he delights to, then it must mean that there's some other reason God is doing everything for his glory. If it's not that he wants to, if it's not that he delights to, it must be some other sense of obligation. It's as simple as this. If God's not doing all things for his glory because he wants to, it must be because he has to. 
And yet, of course, it can't be that. There, there is nothing outside of God that constrains him to do anything. There is nothing or no one higher than God that can lay upon him any duty. God is complete and perfect in his sovereign freedom. He doesn't do anything unless he wants to do it. And so if God is doing everything for his glory, it must be true. He's doing everything for his glory because he wants to do it for his glory. He delights to do it for his glory. And so joy in himself, delight in himself must be the motivation. Do we know that God does everything that he does because he wants to out of his own delight? Yes. Uh, this morning we quoted Daniel 4, 34 and 35. I'll just read one little snippet. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. That word will could just as easily and accurately be translated as desire. God does according to his desire what he chooses to do, what he wants to do. This kind of language is found throughout the scripture. Ephesians 1.5. Ephesians 1.5. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Meaning according to the purpose of his desire. What he wants to do. What he delights to do. Because it was his joy he chose to save a people. Hebrews 2 verse 4. Another example, Hebrews 2, verse 4. It's actually talking here about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And this verse says that while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So even the spiritual gifts that God gives to various Christians, He gives out of this ultimate motivation. He wants to. It is his delight to give you spiritual gifts. Put simply, the Bible teaches that God does all that he does according to his desire, according to what he wants to do, according to his delight. And therefore, if he's doing everything to his glory, it must be because he delights to glorify himself. It is his joy to delight in himself. Let me point you to something else that may be even clearer. Is God happy in himself? And can I prove it biblically? Absolutely. I think the clearest verse is 1 Timothy 1.11. 1 Timothy 1.11. We actually ended our message last Sunday night quoting 1 Timothy 1.11. We're going to focus on a different part of it here. Listen to this verse again. Hear exactly what this gospel is, what this good news is that we have as Christians. Paul says, in accordance with, with the gospel, the good news, of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Okay? So Paul says, I have a gospel. I have good news. And this is good news about glory. Glory about a God. It's glory of a God. I have good news about the glory of a God. But he's not just a God. He's a blessed God. This is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Blessed. It's the Greek word makarios. It literally means happy. In fact, the Greek root, makar, it means happy. Um, 
Romans 14.22 in the New American Standard says this, The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn in himself what he approves. Happy is he. It's the exact same word used of God in 1 Timothy 1.11. Right? So it could be just as accurately translated, 1 Timothy 1.11, the gospel of the glory of the happy God with which I have been entrusted. Friends, our God is not only full of wisdom and full of power and full of righteousness and full of mercy, but he is full of infinite God-centered joy. And therefore, it doesn't surprise us that he does everything that he does in heaven and everything that he does on earth to glorify himself, to delight in himself, to express the pleasure that he has in all that he is. But what about that last part? Is it true that God does all that he does, not only out of his delight in himself, but in order to share his delight with angels and redeemed men? Could it be that God finds delight not only in expressing his attributes for himself, but in sharing his delight in himself with others, sort of put it another way, could it be that God finds joy in our joy in Him? Aren't we like this as image bearers of God? When we find something we really like, what do we do? We go tell other people and we want them to enter into our joy, right? Right? So we're at the state fair, right? And you get one of those big fried turkey leg things, right? That weren't fried, but turkey, turkey legs, right? And you eat, oh, that's so good. And what you, Crystal, taste this, right? Why? Because you, you want to share your joy. You, you want to bring somebody else into it. Well, this is how joy works. God is full of infinite joy in himself, and now he is sharing that joy with us. Does the Bible teach that? Yes. Um, first, uh, I'm sorry, Second Thessalonians 1.10 is one example, but I want to go straight to John. I want to go straight to John 15.11 because this verse is huge. Listen to John 15.11. <laughs> this verse is amazing. Jesus says to his disciples, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Disciples, everything I've been teaching you, everything I've been sharing with you, everything that I've been wanting you to understand about who I am and why I've come, here is the goal of it all, right? That my joy that I have as God in myself may be in you and that your joy may be full, overflowing, abundant, filled to the brim. Jesus speaks of of my joy, his joy. And he's teaching truth to his disciples so that through that truth, they too may enter into that joy. Or John 16, verse 24. John 16, verse 24. He says again to his disciples, Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Friends, Jesus can't give what he doesn't have. (laughs) The reason he is able to give fullness of joy is that he has 
fullness of joy in himself. The only way our joy can be full is for our joy to be centered on the infinite God. Jesus has that fullness of joy in the infinite God, in himself. And through Jesus, that joy is imparted to us. And amazingly, here's what he says to his disciples. Do you want this? Ask, and I'll give it to you. Every other religion would say, check this box, check this box, check this box, check this box. Be good enough. Make sure your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. Don't do this kind of sin. If you do this kind of sin, make sure you say these prayers and fulfill them. Jesus says, do you want this kind of joy? Ask in my name, and I'll give it to you, that your joy may be full. You should be amazed. You should be dancing. You should be, I mean, that's mind-boggling. And then it only gets deeper and greater and grander because there's John 17. And we just can't get into John 17 tonight because we we, we'll be here till midnight. And it would be wonderful, honestly, and I'd do it if y'all were up for it. But John 17 is one of the most glorious passages in all of the Bible. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 48 sermons on John 17. So... I like Lloyd-Jones. Um, tonight, just hear what Jesus prays concerning his followers in John 17, verse 13. John 17, verse 13. Jesus prays to his Father and says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, his disciples, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So there it is again. Jesus has been speaking to his followers in this world for this purpose that they would have his joy in God fulfilled in themselves. So what is the purpose of everything? The purpose of everything is that the glorious character of God would be expressed for the enjoyment of God, his angels, and especially the redeemed. Or if you want a two-word answer, don't you like a two-word answer? A two-word answer for the purpose of everything, shared joy. I'd want to make it four words. Shared joy in God, to make it clear. Shared joy in God. Two points of application, and we'll be done with what we've learned on this Lord's Day. Here they are. Number one, know that your life has meaning and purpose. Know that your life has meaning and purpose. You are not the result of mere chance or coincidence in a meaningless universe. Nor do you need to go out there and try to create some meaning for your life. Here is your meaning and purpose. You are an expression of God's glory. You are an expression of God's glory. You are the handiwork of God created for His own enjoyment as He sees you as His handiwork, created for the enjoyment of His angels as they behold you as His handiwork. And and you're not a dog, and you're not a tree, and you're not a flamingo. You're a human being, which means you're the apex of God's creation. You're, You're the choicest of God's creations. You're better than even the supernovas and the the black holes and the oceans. Those things are amazing. God gave you an eternal soul. 
you have something of the divine spirit breathed in you. And you are created in God's image. And therefore, many of the amazing attributes of God that he delights in have been communicated, given to you. God is infinitely wise. You have a measure of wisdom. God is infinitely strong. You have a measure of strength. God is infinitely righteous. Every human being has an innate sense of right and wrong and fairness and unfairness. God is compassionate and merciful. You have the ability to imitate Him in those things. What God is in macro, you are able to be in a limited micro scale for His own enjoyment. The angels look at you and marvel. You are a living, walking, breathing picture of the glory of God expressed in this world. Your body is a miracle of creation. That there is more going on in a single cell of your body than we could possibly understand. And you have billions of those cells. The angels of heaven, the saints who have gone before, they, are, they look at you as a masterpiece of design. God's glory is expressed in your very existence. You exist as an expression of the glory of God. But not only that, as God relates to you, Angels and saints are able to see and savor even more of God's glory because God's patience is being shown as he relates to you. Oh boy, is God's patience being shown as he relates to me. And the angels in heaven, they don't just look at this guy and say, you know, wow, what a, what a masterpiece of God's creation. And they say, wow, God, you are, look at your patience. Look at your forbearance with that fellow, Right? Are you not thankful for God's patience with you? God's wisdom is being expressed in how he has ordered your life. How he has ordered everything that happens to you, big or small. And if you're a Christian in this room, you are a trophy of God's grace. And the amazing depths of his mercy are being revealed in you. This is why the day of judgment will be a public event. Every sin you've ever committed will be revealed. On the day of judgment, all of your deepest, darkest thoughts, your most vile words, your most heinous deeds, all of them will be made known. Things that would make you blush if I were to announce them to this congregation tonight. Things that would make you blush if it was revealed. The things that you had said, thought, and done, they will be revealed on the last day. And then with all of your dirty laundry revealed for everyone to see, Jesus Christ will pronounce you forgiven by his blood and you will be welcomed into paradise as a child of God and all the angels and all the saints will say, what a God of mercy. And that's why we'll be singing and praising and worshiping forever this is why you exist to show the glory of god your life has meaning your life has purpose number two final point of application not only are you an expression of god's glory and an object of god's glory but if you're a christian you are one of those creatures with whom god is sharing his glory sorry his joy You are one of those creatures with whom God is sharing his joy. He is, we could talk more about sharing his glory. That's actually true as well, but we're going to stick with joy for now. You are one of those wonderful, blessed beings to whom God is displaying his character. 
all around you in creation, in the unfolding of history, in your life, in your friends' lives, God is revealing his character to you. And through Jesus Christ, as you see and savor more of God's glory, your joy is becoming full. The more you learn from Christ, the more you sit at his feet and he teaches you his truth about who he is, the more he is giving you fullness of joy in God. And on the last day, when you are pure and blameless and you enter into the new heavens and the new earth, your joy will be truly full in a way that we can't even imagine today. You will be sharing in an astounding way in God's joy in himself. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So let us see how truly blessed we are if we have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've not been saved, then run to Jesus Christ and find forgiveness for your sin. And become one of those saints who will share in the eternal joy of God forever and forever. Let's pray.